Uh, thank you all for being here today. Uh, it's it's always delightful. We talk in the Anglican Church, and as I've just revealed, I'm not a born a cradle Anglican. But we, one of the things that I truly treasure about the Anglican Church is the seasons and recognizing the year. And I recognize the seasons through Ed. <laughs> Ed, is, Ed is my sign that Advent is beginning. <laughs> because, did you know? Shedding my leaves. <laughs> Ed is one of uh, St. John's best, I don't, best kept hidden secrets, treasures, unhidden, revealed treasures. Revealed. revealed treasures. I know that we just, we are so privileged to have him as he unlocks the music of the season, but for me, it's more than the music of the season. It's the sentiment behind, and it's the worship behind, and it's the quieting our hearts at this very special time of year. And I would ask that you give him, wait for it, not only a robust welcome, but encouragement at the end to sign up for the spring session. <laughs> Thank you, Ed, so much for being here. That's very generous. Thank you. Well, here we go. Awake calls the voice of the watchman on the tower. Awake, you city of Jerusalem. Midnight, the hour is named. They call to us with bright voices. Where are you, wise virgins? The bridegroom comes. Take your lamps. Alleluia. Make yourselves ready for the wedding. You must go to meet him. Is that too loud? So Bach, Cantata 140, famous piece. This is this kind of creeping, should we wake them, or is it, is it depicting people asleep? We're not quite sure. But Bach phrases this very specifically, more than he does usually. It's a certain kind of effect. And that walking bass... We sing the hymn, I'm sure you recognize it. It's a Lutheran chorale. I don't know how you get men to sing like that. There must be some drug you can buy. <laughs> Unfortunately, of course, uh, well, unfortunately, uh, we have to face the fact that some of the riches that I hope to show you today are not in the English language. Some are, um, obviously German, and there'll be some Latin, but we'll explain that as they come along. Bach melds that unique melody with the chorale is quite outstanding, isn't it? Classic of his work. 
This is John Elliott Gardner and the um, Monteverdi Choir. We follow after. thought that would be a good start. <laughs> Beautiful music <clears throat> marked by a kind of modesty of approach. I learned um, when Susan and I were in America on those two occasions, and I don't mean this in any critical mean way at all, but I was fascinated to see how Christmas is kind of triggered in the culture by Thanksgiving. Uh, in other words, by Macy's and Nordstrom. Uh, <laughs> Um, this is an, impo an important kind of point in the year. It's lovely. I love the Thanksgiving celebration and so on. But the concept of Advent, uh, not in the Episcopal or <coughs> Catholic or um, the new Anglican churches, uh, but in many others, just tends to be ignored. Um, it's an uncomfortable point. They want to get into Christmas ahead of time. And then once Christmas Day is over, you've, of course, got the sales at Nordstrom and, and Macy's, and that's that. <laughs> so there go the 12 days of Christmas. <clears throat> this approach, as you know full well, is a different one, and it's preparation, touching on these um, multiple themes of Christ's awaited coming, his birth historically, day of judgment, day of reckoning. And uh, these threads make up Advent and call for a very particular kind of expression, I think. At least it gets a very particular kind of expression through, the, through music. <clears throat> I think what, what I hope to do today is just take us on a little tour through different composers, different times, different periods, offering snippets and sometimes whole pieces that might be enriching. Nearly all of them are accessible on YouTube, so um, that might be an encouragement too. I think at the very quiet end of um, the celebration, nothing for me personally beats this glorious statement, he has <coughs> filled the hungry with good things, Isurientes, from Bach's, uh, Bach again, Bach's setting of the Magnificat. Here it is. This is Bernarda Fink. Nicholas Harnoncourt is conducting the ensemble. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
This is a brutal passage to get through. She hath sent empty away. This is in Latin, of course. If that isn't a foretaste of heaven, I'm not sure what is. <laughs> Very um, slender texture, elegantly poised, real beauty. As the uh, Virgin goes through this reflection of what the Lord has done to or celebration of what the Lord has done to her. Plus the prophetic aspect, of course, <clears throat> um, he has put down the mighty from their seat. And uh, or rather, sorry, he filled the hungry with good things and the rich he had sent empty away. Um, other people um, took a slightly different musical approach um, from the same period. Handel, I think, is perhaps the most extraordinary... Handel's Messiah is the most extraordinary coverage of the seasons, if you will, or the entire gospel story arched from Genesis through to Revelation. Um, I'm just searching here for the layout of Handel's Messiah. At the very beginning, the first bit, there's a recitative, Comfort ye my people. Then is an aria, Every valley shall be exalted. Then is a chorus, which I'm going to play, And the glory of the Lord. <clears throat> then the recitative, Thus saith the Lord. And then the aria for alto, but who may abide the day of his coming, can be sung by a soprano. Chorus, and he shall purify. The restative, behold a virgin shall conceive. Aria and chorus, O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion. And then a restative, for behold darkness shall cover the earth. And then finally, the advent segment, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. That seems to sum up Advent perfectly. <laughs> and I wish there were time just to play all that. There isn't. 
But here, as you know very well, is the chorus. Except it isn't the chorus. Oops. It's wrong. Ah, so where's that gone? Excuse me a moment while I just think. Where did that go? Oh dear. It's embarrassing. If this gets out. Oh. Well, I seem to have. I've lost it. What a shame. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry, guys. How embarrassing. Something slipped there. Um, I hope everything else is in place. Um, hmm. Right. Well, the trouble is if that's out, what else is out? Um, well, so we can't play uh, <laughs> And the Glory of the Lord by Handel. Let's see what happens yeah. Okay, here we go. <laughs> um, not, not with every. I'm afraid the glory of the Lord, which the glory of the Lord seems to have got lost. Um, at the same time as uh, Handel was busy, what was happening? all very well talking about concert hall and uh, cathedral, but what was happening in the average church? Uh, well, people like John Wesley, uh, Charles Wesley, John Wesley to some extent, but Charles Wesley mostly was <coughs> assembling hymns of real vigor and body. Very, very much sensitive to the scriptures throughout. There's very little, um, uh, there's very little sentimental cloaking. There's care in the imagery. There is care and skill in the language. And I think, I must say, the Wesleyan deposit of hymnody is one of our great treasures. And it would have been sung not in the more refined Victorian Anglican way, which we've got used to, but in a fairly rough-edged way, which uh, uh, Maddie Pryor and her band <laughs> can explain. <laughs> So lo he comes with clouds descending, this looking ahead to Christ's return, of course. Lo he comes with clouds descending, once for favorite Caesar's reign, thousand thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of his So this is a little idealized for the sake of the recording, but um, there would be a group of instrumentalists in the gallery of your uh, 18th century Anglican church. Music was very plain, and it was ordered so by law. <laughs> really, Anglicans were supposed to use, uh, technically speaking, metrical psalmody. They weren't supposed to uh, start indulging in these hymns that were starting to be heard about 
Um, the Baptists started some hymns. Uh, they knew that the Lutherans had chorales, but the Calvinist emphasis on um, the metrical psalm was the order of the day. Until you hit the early 19th century, when partly, mostly through the high church movement, suddenly hymnody takes off. And you have the first big Victorian hymn book, Hymns Ancient and Modern, from the middle of the century, which I grew up with as a kid. Um, it had been revised a bit, but not much. But at least hymnody had come, and the church had sort of said, these Methodies have these hymns. Wesley had gone and said, Methodism is born in song. We better do something about this. And uh, along with a whole enriching of uh, ritual, if you will, or liturgy, we get a number of outpourings, the Oxford movement or the Tractarians or the Anglo-Catholic branch, which is more elaborate again with uh, Catholic imagery and so on. And at any rate, hymns take their place. And uh, But this would be more typical of what you'd hear in an Anglican church, which is broken away from... Uh, or challenging this rigid adherence to metrical psalmody and is now starting to take some of these songs that they're hearing from people around them. So be a group of instrumentalists in the gallery. The organ probably didn't work. They were into extensive neglect in those days. Um, back on the continent, what else was going on? Around this time, uh, 1736 to into the 19th century, Michael Haydn was one of many composers setting the Magnificat text to, to Latin, almost invariably. And uh, you can feel this kind of searching for style going on. Um, it's a beautiful piece, it really is. Again in Latin. When I say searching for style, born in the midst of Bach's life, like Bach's children, Desiring now to leave the Baroque language, which is very particular, and moving into this very different language of the classical musical era. There's more emphasis on tune. Uh, the inner workings of the music are more supportive than they are linearly uh, um, collaborative. Not many fugues. San Francisco Girls' Choir. I wish the words were clearer, but... 
So it could be, if you blank out the words, you could be listening to almost to opera, but not quite. But I love the instrumentation. It's, it's so light. But there's no attempt to do a programmatic job on the text. It could be music you would hear in string quartet, chamber music form, without any word association at all. The music at this point is adaptable. It, you'd almost say neutral, not quite, but it serves in this extraordinary way. It's when things move into the Romantic period that uh, it becomes much more expressive and much more, uh, frankly, emotionally rooted. So it's now more about how the composer sees Mary, how the composer sees the context of this Luke passage. Um, if, for instance, we move up into the point where Anglican music really gets revived through C.B. Stanford, who founded the Royal College of Music. He was deeply alarmed. Uh, his dates are 18, late 1880s into the very early 19th century. Um, very alarmed at the musical standards in Britain, which had slumped, and so he established the college to try and rectify that. Um, but he wrote a lot of music for the church, which is still frequently sung. But I'll just fade out of this and move into Charles Stanford's setting of the Magnificat. Now, what he's done is, and I'll just double-check that it's sitting here obediently. Um, excuse me while I do so. Yeah, it is. Good. Um, what we have here is a situation where you... How do I think about... A lot of this was going on in Stanford's time. How do I like to think of Jesus? How do I like to think about this biblical account? Um, can I get it to fit like Christmas cards into a kind of, perhaps, let's say, an English rural scene? So instead of this grim stable in the Middle East, it's a lovely kind of Sussex stable with a polite layer of snow and um, straw not far away and just well-behaved sheep all round. Um, so given the fact that Stanford had studied in Germany, we see a little bit of the Wagnerian influence here because apparently Mary is spinning in this and uh, it's beautiful. Uh, and then he gives to a soprano, a boy soprano, um, the, the main text throughout. Um, and then when it comes to putting down the mighty from the seat, the men are brought in. You know, um, it's wonderful, but it's it veers dangerously towards a Mon Monty Python interpretation of... Uh... <laughs> Thank you, next one. St. John's College, Cambridge. So there's a spinning going on.
beautifully crafted, lovely, lovely music. This is a Magnificat in G. He wrote two or three, but this is perhaps his best known. So 1852, he's a mid-Victorian, to 1924. This is date. Spinning wheels still going. Remarkable boy soprano. Extra iced bun for him. beautiful piece, but very representative of that period um, and a very lovely representation. Then um, you find, you get with post-romanticism um, a continuation of that 19th century idiom where your personal feelings and your personal emotions uh, are a very powerful influence on the music. You're not subject to a style so much as you would be as a J.S. Bach or a Michael Haydn, where you sort of acknowledge the discipline you're raised in and work within that frame. Now you can sort of go anywhere you like. Um, not quite, but almost. And of course, in modernism, which often was a bit like romanticism in some respects, you can go really wild. Um, this composer was born in... Uh, we might hear a bit of wildness in a minute, but this composer is interesting to me. We only just discovered him. Kim Andre Arnesen, Norwegian composer, born in 1980. But it's interesting to see now that there's, for me, another social influence is creeping into this setting of the Magnificat done by Nidros Cathedral Girls' Choir. And it's a kind of filmic, very, I would say, sensual kind of setting. Uh, there's a, a very beautiful soprano, a woman, soprano, not a girl, um, and then this choir of 30 girls 
small professional orchestra with uh, two cellos prominent at the front. You can see the photograph of the recording. And uh, it comes up with... We've heard that, yes, thank you. Where's it gone? Five. Sorry, that. Piano as well. Strong hints of John Rutter in this. I believe this is being sung in Norwegian. I wish I could guide you through the text, um, but uh, I, Norwegian is not a f- language I'm familiar with.
so it's um, and you might call it an easy listening version but very beautifully crafted um, very beautifully performed the music making in the uh, Scandinavian countries especially of this kind is of a very very high order partly because children are brought up with it in the schools from the word go orchestra and singing um, then Arvo Pert the uh, Estonian composer strong Christian um, has a slightly different turn on the language um, it, he demands much more time and I won't play it all uh, he de- all his settings to deums and mag- all the canticle settings are uh, uh, on a canvas of substantial width and the listener is expected to get drawn in and concentrate for these long periods of time but just to give you a taste um, this in Latin it's hard to hear the words I admit with these acoustics I think there's a sense in which we're supposed to know what they're singing about and enjoy the sounds. The, the, just the soundscaping and the colour is just, seems to me personally, what we need to bring um, to our Lord musically. Um, if we can do it, if circumstances permit. They don't always. Whether it's the Wesley hymn we heard, or this is excellence. Not perfection, excellence. So the music kind of, or composer says, look, this is an important text. I don't suppose you want to take this home and play it over lunch, but this is what we need now for this text to come alive.
and his mercies from generation to generations to them that fear him was happy. And it goes on at some length. It's only third way through the text. But uh, reflective, gorgeous, and almost indifferent to the time frame, like this must fit in to a commercial four-minute segment because it's going to go online for sale and it's got to be downloadable. Now that piece uh, is another setting of the... Another theme that is very um, much linked in our hearts, I think, and memories with Advent, is the Veni, Veni, Emmanuel. Come, O come, Emmanuel theme. Uh, Here it is, sung by the Jesualdo Six and a Cambridge University-based group of extraordinary... How these guys make so much... Volume out of six voices, I don't know. This is a very recent recording. So, the, the high voices are these guys singing falsetto. So a contemporary arrangement by them, and yet clearly with a a very strong backward glance to medieval, parallel motion. Rejoice, rejoice. dynamic range it'd be wonderful if we could all congregationally sing like that there's no reason why we can't it's all the political plot kind of organum humming underneath.
That's very beautiful singing. <laughs> um, and a simple, not complicated for the sake of being complicated, not trying to be um, cute for the sake of cute setting and arrangement. This is James Macmillan's take on uh, Veni Veni Emmanuel. And this is tricky because there's no word, there are no words. It's orchestral with a percussion solo. Um, it's a long work, and I've only got the final extract. But what he clearly is trying to... This Christian composer from Scotland, whose works are all the rage in Europe, um, and there's rumour of trying to get him out here to give some lectures. Um, he's a lovely guy, and he writes these complex pieces, or simple pieces for his Catholic diocese church in, in Glasgow. Um, there are no airs about the man he is very down to earth but this piece is complex in texture and very dissonant and you get the feeling as you listen to this cacophony you can just hear little intervallic traces and references to I can hear those coming in but they are difficult to trace but they're there and there's this cacophony and it begins to break down until eventually yeah, with sort of honking noises from the trombone, the, this distraught world, and then it breaks down, breaks down, breaks down, breaks down, to this tinkling, and you, again, even in the tinkling high bells, you can hear traces of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Uh, I find it very effective, but it's not, not a terribly easy piece, but again, is it an easy faith? Um, so... Here we go.
I found that incredible myself, um, but not easy. Then, almost last, I wanted to uh, play another piece of his, uh, sung by a, an adult non-professional choir. Well, they won the Adult Non-Professional Choir of the Year, 2012, in England, the uh, Surrey Hills Choir. It's a choir of... I would actually say it's a middle-aged choir of um, perhaps 15 people, um, and they sing a piece, O Radiant Dawn, by James McMillan. This is one of the O anthem texts associated with uh, Advent, Um, and its theme, you'll hear it, is essentially, you know, come, O light of the world, and shine on those who are in darkness, and just like that text that Handel uses. And... uh, Again, a, a very fine work. This is a live performance. Very different in style, plain. So this is a Surrey Hills choir in um, I'm trying to think 
in the name of the town, I can't for the moment. In This reiteration of O come, O come, is, uh, this is a very direct, homophonic kind of treatment of the text. Guildford, that's where it is. Guildford, sorry. So, same composer, radically different style, much more tonal um, and accessible to singers and listeners, uh, congregation alike. So they just, this group just stands mixed, no conductor. She, there is a conductor, but she joins them to sing and faces outwards. So I'm really, uh, in many ways, at the end of the journey, um, in the sense that I've covered uh, a stretch of time. <laughs> in terms of a composer's responses to uh, this vital, critical, wonderful period in the church calendar. Vital and critical because it embodies so many things. Christ's, uh, Christ's birth, of course, celebrated. Christ's return, imminent. Um, expectation and always in the, at the back cloth, an accountability day, a judgment day, um, his return in glory. I don't know if that's helpful, but I'm sorry that the glory of the Lord of Handel's setting vanished, but perhaps it'll be made up for the person who I think, for me, at the end of the day, catches it best. Good old Bach.
So we got dance, celebration. This is a different approach. Presumably celebration on the part of Mary, as well as us. John Elliott Gardner again. The choir sounds as though it's laughing. And Bach is so good at bringing in a kind of crowd feel to the chorus. One voice, another voice, other voices saying, yeah, ha, 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 ha. Um, He does that in his passion music wonderfully. So it's time for questions and discussion if you'd like to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm reminded of an interview recently Ken Myers did with, oh dear, I can't remember his name, you wouldn't know him, Wilson, uh, London University, um, young uh, musicologist, uh, saying that music, Jeremy Begbie, reflect, Begbie reflects on this a lot, that music, modernity can be expressed, is expressed through music and music expresses what's going on in society Um, and we can see the different approaches here which do reflect to some extent the way we have been either trained, coerced or want to think about things I think perhaps it's striking to me that the trend once we leave the 18th century is to move into an increasingly personalised view of the faith The, the other is not abandoned but it's how I think, and what I think about it is of vital importance. <laughs> and of course, you get this ultimately in the solo contemporary song. Um, and it's fascinating. So I think keeping an eye on the history of music, it, it actually, I think it's an underestimated barometer of the way society, and most especially the church, has gone. Um, 
you have the caution of the Calvinistic approach. We don't want this thing to take off and start getting airs, and, excuse the pun, and um, become you know, all those dangers of conceit and performance and all that stuff. You've got the Lutheran delight, which Luther himself initiated, of music as a gift of God of the most importance. It's going to be taught to the children in the schools as it was. It, in the church, you have to make room for performance and congregational. That's like we have. Um, so the chorale, but then the settings of the chorales in the cantatas, the passion music, and things like the Magnificat. Um, but the other thing this interview brought up was that when we sing together, and he talked to some research into this, there's a sense in which we resonate with each other. And people who have sung, people who are singing in some of these choirs where the tuning is so perfect, um, there is actually a kind of vibrational awareness of wow. If a choir tunes on a chord over time, perhaps, you know, a minute or two, and it suddenly clicks, you can see the, the eyes going <laughs> like that. When your piano is tuned perfectly, suddenly, wow, that's different. Um, and I think those are hints of heaven, where we will actually have perfect voices, and we will sing together, and we'll re we will resonate. <laughs> Enough said. Any questions? I think James Macmillan is a point of great hope because he, he does write simply for the church. What's wrong with... I'm not, nobody's complaining, I hope, about simple. It's when it becomes simplistic that we've got trouble. Um, and that usually means you've moved into a very predictable, therefore probably commodified idiom of expression. Um, but James Macmillan, everything is kind of home-baked, if you will, home-grown, home-baked, home-cooked, with you in mind, or that would be the congregation of that particular church, um, not some out-there market that you hope to um, engulf, and has been engulfed. So I think that his willingness to work, work, do workshops, and then at the same time, He's addressing this new notion which has come about, I've read about this in several spots, um, that for many people who've abandoned church, for whatever reasons, um, but including aesthetic reasons, whatever you may think of it, whatever we may think of that, now are turning to the concert hall as their church, in a way, or their worship, in a way. So, um, someone perhaps growing up in a... <coughs> an environment where there is, some of the music we've been hearing today is simply not possible or perhaps not allowed or certainly, almost certainly not encouraged, then they're going to sign up for the um, Vancouver Chamber Choir Series and that's where they will get, and I've heard language like this I go there for my spiritual uh, recharging <laughs> go to these concerts, I go to the Messiah once a year at the Orpheum for a spiritual recharging um, 
So I think Macmillan addresses that too. So, okay, if we're going to come to the concert hall, at the promenade concerts in London, we're going to hear one of my works. I've been commissioned to write it, and I'm going to make sure it centers on Christ in some thematic way. And uh, I think it's vital, because it, it, it stops this notion that the arts at their finest um, are somehow over there and to be treated with great caution, um, which I'm afraid has been a tendency in the evangelical wing. Yes? I'm fascinated by what I think of as the landscape. Yes. Uh, James McMillan, yeah. Uh, we're in the chaos of the world. Yes. So obviously, you're in the And I think the key, perhaps, to the successful composers in all ages has been, am I serving? (laughs) Offering, am I a suffering servant? But am I serving? Um, Now, that can get corrupted into uh, a craven supplying whatever people want, but these guys resist that. They may touch on it, but they resist that. Or they may take a folk melody or a plain old plain chant melody and elevate it not that there's anything wrong with it in its original form but they elevate it in a way that will connect with their contemporary listeners yeah I think that's such a vital part it's not always a feature of the romantic composers I have an idea and you're going to hear it you know Wagner like and I've built my own theatre for you to listen to it in with lockable doors, and you've got <laughs> my scenery, my libretto, my music, my orchestra, d- to a large extent, um, redesigned. It's all about me, and it's going to be a week full of it before we get to the ring cycle. That, to me, um, invites comment. It's not, uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not modesty um, epitomized, is it? There must be other questions. Yes. We are so wedded to organs in some Christian churches, I'm included. Uh, And so much of the gorgeous music that I personally enjoy, and you have played some of it, is associated with an organ. But um, Maddie Pryor represents an age when Methodist preachers went out into a field no organ, hmm. let's take portable instruments. Hmm. So they did fife and drum and whatever. And it's gorgeous too. And hmm. I love her stuff. Um, but we're in an age that's getting farther away from the organ, except some diehard people. And I think I might even put myself in that group now and then. Um, what are we going to do about that? How can we preserve 
some of the beauty of the music that we enjoy yes. when we've got combos and other things um, relating to music that is often very meaningful and a lot of it is the rejoicing kind of stuff, you mm -hmm. know. Um, <clears throat> and, but we can't preserve what we like about Bach that mm. way. So mm. could you just comment on that? I could at length, and it would not do well for me to do so. <laughs> no, I will. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yes, I, first of all, the organ gets a bad rap here on the west coast of Canada. As you travel west from Halifax, the organ, which you can... It, Halifax has 20 good organs. Halifax Dartmouth, at least 20, including some modern instruments, uh, beautifully built, and a lot of cassavants from the mid... 20th and early 20th century and back into the 19th. And then you come to Quebec. <coughs> the trouble is many of those churches are now empty. Um, and then you hit Toronto. Some of the big Edwardian, late Victorian churches have big Edwardian, late Victorian organs like um, Timothy Memorial, uh, St. James Cathedral and so on. Um, and then it starts to taper rapidly <coughs> to travel west. And you hit Vancouver and you have a city which had a few uh, nice organs put in in the early 20th century. Uh, the cathedral, Sanders Wesley, uh, one or two others. Uh, the suburbs had not yet developed. When they did, it was after the Second World War. They put things up quickly, like St. Philip's Dunbar, where I served briefly when Susan and I were first married. Um, and what do they do for an organ? Um, oh, a theatre organ. They're getting rid of their theatre organs, so they put in a theatre organ. You know, wholly unsuitable in every way, uh, but in it went. It was a very sort of make-do, pioneer kind of approach. And then, bit by in the mid-60s, some decent instruments went in, including at St. Philip's, which has a beautiful little Castleland organ, um, St. Mary's Carisdale, uh, the Presbyterian Church in Carisdale, all went in around the same time, UBC's organ. And then, um, but still, you were left with lots and lots and lots of small churches representing multitudinous um, uh, denominations and split-offs and so on. And uh, as you move out into the suburbs, there actually are no pipe organs worth mentioning. Um, one or two but uh, not many. And it's really a famine. You hit Victoria, a little more hope there, and then you go up Island and it's... So it's a bit of a wasteland here, but in the States, it's a wholly different story. Yes, that's true. Much bigger country, I know. But then there are these magnificent instruments to be found uh, in Pittsburgh. I was just asked to help advise on a, the evangelical equivalent of us, um, Church of the Ascension, they're going to renovate at some cost this beautiful um, 1960s or 50s Austin pipe organ. They're going to do that. They've renovated the big church organ, huge church, huge organ at uh, East Liberty Presbyterian. There are seven Casablanca organs in Pittsburgh, American city. There's scads of other instruments. There's a brand new Italian organ gone into a Lutheran church. There are two Reuter organs, fairly recent installations in the chapel at the university. Ha! Chapel at the university! And um, at the big another big Presbyterian church. I had a huge Casavant organ to play put in in 1984. It's, it's just off the radar here. 
It oh, isn't off the radar there. It's we have organ is not dead. <laughs> it really is not. Um, and then, um, so that's the first thing I would say. And then, the trouble then is you're up against a brick wall, which is rather complex to go into. Um, I don't. It is possible, as we heard, Susan and I heard at the cathedral last week, to have a lovely mix of instrumental and organ. I forget what was it, it was viola, I think, a viola and organ, doing these bridges between verses. Um, so the organ is serving, and then there's this other sound. Uh, I, it, it, that is possible, but I'm afraid it actually boils down to money. Who's going to pay for the violinist to come in, especially to play for that service? Is your church willing to put aside a budget for that sort of thing? So one Veni, Veni, which I nearly played, decided against, was from a, some kind of, I don't know where, mega church in America, massive organ at the front, church plunged into darkness, pinpoint lights everywhere, huge orchestra, massive choir, children's choir, I, I, big percussion section, all for one piece. <laughs> and I thought, how on earth do they afford that? This is their big Christmas presentation thousands of dollars. You can't hire musicians outside of union rates or you'll be in trouble. Professionals. Um, so I think that's part of the problem. It's vision. I'm not sure that I thought it was worth it doing the, what they did in this clip. But nevertheless, they did it. And that's a vision. We want to do things this way. But it costs, you need feet on the ground and you need money. It's as blunt as that, I think. But and we need... Mega. Yes, they do. Yeah. Well, this one obviously did. Yeah. And you need the quality organs to offset what you were just saying. Because mm -hmm. bad organ sound is, you know. I'm the Grim Creeper. Oh, one more well, oh, one more question. Yes. Thank you so much for your presentation. Um, I, I'm curious about the, the interest of this genre of music, this type of music. For people under the age of 50, yes. my assumption is that this could be a dying genre, that the appreciation of the beauty of this music could be dying with, with age. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm very curious about your comment that some people will go to a concert hall to get their spiritual. Yes, yes. And I, one of the things that I'm probably really interested in is, is, the, is the hunger for spirituality in our postmodern age. Yes. And, and, this really does nourish my soul. This type of music, even if I have, even if I'm not even listening in English, it still nourishes my soul. So, and I'm, so I'm just curious about that hunger for spirituality in our postmodern age among 20s and 30s and 40s, people who didn't grow up with this, being forced to listen to it perhaps in their home, but but maybe are just intrigued with the beauty of it. And I'm just wondering, what is your read of our Western culture and people's interest? I'll try to be really quick. I think, first of all, I'd like to say that if we could have seen video clips of all these choirs, you'd be astounded at the number of young people, obviously the girls' choirs. And uh, you can say, well, they're just forced into No, they're not. Uh, I don't think so. The guy is singing um, the, the, uh, the um, what's it called, Jesuado Six group. I mean, they're, they're graduate age because um, they're university students. Um, and stuff I went through time and time and time again, but especially in England, you see young choirs, 
musical intermediate, young singer. I don't know how young now, but when they started out, very, you know, significantly young. The vast number of people in the Bach choir network of children's choirs. What I see in Powell River, where I go quite often, where a whole town, Milltown, has been um, impacted by Don James and his choral program for the young. To the point where when they celebrated his seventh, the 65th year or something, people were flying in from all over the globe to thank him for this. I've just started a choir at Regent, and there's a, a young guy in there singing in the bass, good voice, and said, hey, he said, I've never encountered this before. I've just been used to praise and worship. Um, I don't think it's as, as closed down as we think, but I'm sorry to sound like a Marxist. I think the, the vested interest in the praise and worship industry, the pop culture, has this quality of black hole. It's not only we have this to offer and listen, it's we have this to listen and you uh, to offer and you are not going to listen to anything else. We're not going to let you find out about this beautiful stuff online. We want it all to ourselves. I do feel that that's a quality of the, well, commerce, but it's quality of the um, commodification of music, especially worship music. So you have students in the choir at Christian who just simply didn't know there was anything else. <laughs> that, I think, is almost an educational crime, crime of omission. And, uh, but I think the encouraging thing is that most of the faces in there would be very young from what we've been hearing. Thank you. So it's a battle, and we have to be on guard, and we have to keep at it. Thank you, Ed. I, I can't thank you enough for an hour of just introducing beauty into our lives and, and reiterating, I think, if you were at Book Club, how we are not just heads on sticks that need to be fed intellectually, but it's our hearts as well. Yes. Thank you so much, Ed. Thank you.